perhaps apologize at the beginning that I've been telling people that he's actually a native son of South Bend. White. Uh, he actually is the uh, son of parents who grew up in St. Stan's Parish, and he, when he was ordained in uh, 1984, he came back to South Bend to have his first Mass, his Mass of Thanksgiving at St. Stan's. He's not quite a product of South Bend, South Bend area, he actually grew up in Hollywood. Why is it not? This is the Catholic Hollywood. What I'd really like to know, though, is how he got away from the cross and into the clutches of the Society of Jesus. Yes. I have a story. Father Paul is a member of the Oregon province of the Society of Jesus. He's been a member of the Society since 1975. He received his doctorate from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1995. Uh, prior to studies, he worked in Jesuit parish ministry, and then he was associate professor of sacramental and liturgical theology and coordinator of the Chapel of St. Ignatius at Seattle University from 1996 to 2011. During that time, he also did a three-year stint as socius <laughs> provincial. Socius is something like our assistant provincial post. Since uh, 2011, he's been teaching at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara in Berkeley, California. Uh, an institution which, by the way, formed a number of Holy Cross men down through the years. So we're grateful for that as, as well. Father Paul first came to my attention for his first book, The Holy Preaching, The Sacramentality of the Word in the Liturgical Assembly, which appeared in the year 2000. And I would note that in 2010, Pope Benedict XVI picked up that very theme, the sacramentality of the word, and commented on it quite favorably in paragraph 56 of Verbum Domini remains, I think, an important theme and one worthy of further study and elaboration. Father Paul's second book, Standing Together in the Community of God, Liturgical Spirituality and the Presence of Christ, appeared in 2011. Both are published by the Liturgical Press. <laughs> he is currently working on a new book on the devotion of the liturgical assembly as a sacramental body head and members, worshiping as one body. <laughs> Perhaps he will tell us a bit more about that. In addition, he is the author of numerous uh, journal articles and various liturgical and ecumenical journals, especially on preaching as a sacramental presence of Christ, distinct but not separate from the other modes outlined in Sacrosanctum Concilium Number 7, one of the most important paragraphs in all of the writings of Vatican II, I would say. Would you please give a warm Notre Dame welcome to Father Paul Genoiak. Thank you, Mike. I have one comment about that uh, Holy Cross Jesuit thing. <clears throat> Since our, our formation is twice as long as Holy Cross. After, after, 
Come on, Phil, help me out. Phil, get here. On the, on the night of my ordination, my father said to me, I always wish you had gone to Holy Cross. <laughs> so. I chose to speak on uh, encountering a laboring word. And I subtitled it from idle chatter, I-D-O-L, idle chatter to holy preaching. And I'd like to begin to explore the mystery of encountering a laboring word by giving voice to a contemporary Northwest poet from where I am. David White, whose very artful words and soulful reflection just may situate us tonight in that very vulnerable and graceful event of liturgical preaching, which the Dominican theologian and Notre Dame faculty member and my God, Mary Catherine Hilker, <laughs> has called, she called it, the art of naming grace, neither too soon nor too late. Now, when I first began thinking and writing about the role of preaching in worship over two decades ago, Mary Catherine's words became a byword, thank you, and they became a wise direction for everything that followed. After having been in that parish and experiencing great preachers around me and a wonderful community, I said, this is what it's about, naming grace, neither too soon nor too late. And it was about artfully naming grace with these people in this holy place, in the liturgical moment. And so White's poem that I'm going to read speaks poetically of the very vulnerable and precious task of sacramental preaching. It speaks also to the gathered assembly as the locus of the revelation in which this divine and ecclesial self-communication and symbolic exchange take place. And I also think it speaks of the preacher who is a servant of the word of God and who gives voice to the revelatory event in their midst. And so I, as I read it, I just ask you to let the words of the poem flow over you and through you. You've probably heard it before. It's entitled Loaves and Fishes. This is not the age of information. This is not the age of information. Forget the news and the radio and the blurred screen. This is the time of loaves and fishes. People are hungry and one good word is bread for a thousand. So if we begin anywhere, I suggest that we start with the hunger of the people of God. The people of God, the spirit-filled, resurrected body of Christ. 
And where hungry people are, you can surely bet that God will show up. You can bet that God's incarnate word will be settling into their very midst because God's saving acts in Jesus are all about gathering everything into the divine embrace, about entering into the joys and sorrows, the hopes and the dreams of this creation that God has made God's very own. All life, all holiness comes from you through your son, Jesus Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit. So that from the rise, <clears throat> rising of the sun to its setting, a pure offering may be made to the glory of your name. Yet, my friends, to be even more accurate, we should say that this hunger begins first in God. God is hungry. And that our hunger finds its primordial source and flows from God's own heart, which has been pierced out of love and communicated to us by the self-emptying of God's very own beloved. So that Christ goes to where we are so that we can be where he is. This hunger and this thirst at its root is about communion. And the good bread is God's word made flesh. And the refreshment is a sharing in Christ's own life blood that it might flow through my veins. And its mission of communion brings together in symbolic exchange now God's desire and our desire for this communion. And so holy communion is in this marriage of heaven and earth where Christ comes to join our human weakness and we join with his eternal praise to the Father. This is the place, the threshold. The Eastern theologian, also a Dominican, Jean Corbon says, it's the place where two pursuits, two thirsts meet. The place where two worlds of grace and the flesh intermingle. So, <clears throat> given this passionate encounter on so many levels, vertical and horizontal and depth, we can truly say this is not the age of information. This is not the time for idle chatter to stuff into people's heads with pithy stories or ready answers to satiate that hunger. We have to respect the hunger 
That hunger and that thirst is deep, and it permeates all creation and everything that is. This is the time of loaves and fishes, and people are hungry, and one good word is bread for a thousand. You know, I believe that is so true in our world today. Broken and wandering, literally, these days on so many levels. And it's true in our church as well. And for the same reasons. And it's even true in the cries of this good earth that Pope Francis has remind us, reminded us, groans in her travail and asks us to give a new voice to a new relationship between all creatures on this earth and the place in which they dwell. So indeed, in so many dimensions of life, this truly is, and this is what you're being prepared for, is the time of loaves and fishes. And the liturgy is all about that. It is the focal and the privileged arena in word and deed of this sacramental counter encounter that is always relational. It's always dialogical. And it's always participative. All the subjects in this in sacramental encounter are the celebrants of the liturgy not just the presider. We don't stand and greet the celebrant. Celebrants. Celebrants. And this is the way of communion. And Holy Communion is in the Trinity's own life that stirs up this desire. And Christ, as pure gift of this communion, now reaches down at the moment of the liturgy into this people, in this place, where the divine, as Catherine of Siena mused so beautifully, is both host and table and waiter for us. So God's communion is our true home, and our homecoming is the liturgy. I love Catherine's mystic reverie about this encounter. Listen to her sing. I'm sure you've heard these words. She says, and you, high eternal trinity, acted as if you were drunk with love, infatuated with your creature. And when you saw that this tree could bear no fruit but the fruit of death because it was cut off from you who are life, you came to its rescue with the same love with which you created it. You grafted your divinity into the tree of our humanity. Oh, sweet, tender, engrafting. You, sweetness itself, stooped to join yourself with our bitterness. It's beautiful. You know, how else can we respond? She's a doctor of the church, so we should believe her. 
you know? How else can we respond except in awe and wonder, in praise and thanksgiving, and in a willingness then to hand over our lives to this insatiable lover? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? That's the communal song of the body of Christ. And such wonder communicates in the liturgy on so many levels. Levels of word and image of holy things and people, a communio sanctorum that's dressed out in liturgical worship in what Henri de Lubac called a matrix of symbolic relationships. Word proclaimed and preached, an assembly gathered to pray and sing, a presider who gathers the community into one body, into communion, and the holy gifts that are then shared at the table that announce that in all this, the new reality is in our midst. These are the modes of Christ's presence that were articulated by Vatican II's constitution on the sacred liturgy. So word and table are not two separate events. They are distinct, but not separate, to use the traditional term. But they are both two modes of communication in this redemptive dialogue. Indeed, the pilgrim journey of our ancestors out of slavery into freedom, their desire for a place to call home, their struggles to turn away from idols which cannot save, and the dancing and the rejoicing when the Lord opens up a way with the water, a wall of water on the left, and on the right, so that they can enter the new land. All of this is the founding story of any liturgical gathering of a community who come together week after week in ordinary time and in exceptional seasons to find themselves as part of this dangerous anamnetic act and to receive the word as bread and quenching drink so that they can then join in Christ's own self-offering at the table. The French theologian Louis-Marie Chauvet says it all so succinctly. I had an intense reading course with some uh, master's students this past semester we were reading slowly through the big one and all of a sudden it hit me I hadn't noticed it before he says in speaking of the connections between sacraments and scripture as the ritual expression of the very structure of Christian identity he bids us consider the liturgy as the place of scripture the liturgy as the place of scripture indeed what came to be recognized as the Bible, the sacred treasure proclaiming the ongoing story 
of God and human existence, first in Israel and then in the early Christian communities, this was born of the liturgy, to use Chauvet's word. It was born of the liturgy. The ritual gathering was the communal place of the revelation. And this word has been handed down to us today. It's what we read tonight. And so it is in the gathering that the sacred texts become holy scripture. And the ritual reading of the scripture in worship becomes an event of sacred communication between God and the people that God has chosen. And so the liturgy, we have to set this in our imaginations, the liturgy is the place of Scripture. A holy meeting occurs. Worship draws individuals out of their isolating worlds into a common place. Gordon Lathrop calls it a tent of meeting where hungers are fed and joy is renewed and the beloved one, we say, is really present, truly present. Food and drink are prepared and shared as mutual nourishment for mission and meaning. Now, I think it is easy to miss the subtle wonder of this. Think of your own congregation on Sunday or daily mass. I don't know if we always come like that, okay? <laughs> you know, as it occurs week after week with the people you know, with all their foibles, but the liturgy of the word in this holy meeting is not a preprandial for the real event at the table. Now, those of you who are young will not remember this, but those of us who are oldsters will. It used to be you fulfilled your Sunday obligation if you made it by the offertory. <laughs> you remember this, yes. And the liturgy of the catechumens and then the liturgy of the big time, okay? <laughs> but if you consider that word and sacrament are both bound together in this symbolic exchange, it is part of what Karl Rahner called the one whole word of God, word and sacrament. And it's what the Jesuit Otto Semmelroth described so remarkably in the middle of the last century, word and sacrament, word and table, as part of one redemptive dialogue between God and humankind where Christ is announced and he's proclaimed as both Wort und Antwort, word and answer. God's word of promise and the answer incarnate at the table in which we are then invited to commune, wedded to him and he to us, consecrated as a holy people, and hopefully then desiring communion with all who hunger and thirst and seek God with a sincere heart. 
This is another new insight I've had in the last couple months, and it came from reading Corbon. We are not simply in him, wonderful as that is, but Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, is now all in us. All in us, per ipsum, et cum ipso, et an ipso, all dimensions in us. And so in this sacramental economy of the liturgy that is celebrated and lived, Corbon boldly calls this reality the church in a state of epiclesis. What a beautiful image. The church, we're in the state of epiclesis. It is, he says, the transfiguration of the body of Christ. If you believe that, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? Now, I have told my students the following so many times that they often mouth it as I speak. There's nothing worse when they start talking back at you, okay? <laughs> when we do this in memory of him, when we do this in word and sacrament and in ethical living, to use Chauvet's structure of the Eucharistic process, which he said is gift given and received and returned as gift, when we do this, the matter matters, and the form forms. This is what is at stake when we speak of the hunger of the people for a word that will rouse them, as Isaiah says. That this is not the age of information overload and idle chatter. But it's all about a longing for some great meeting place where one good word is bred for a thousand. And that, my friends, is the vulnerable task and the art of naming grace, neither too soon nor too late. And it is a charism. It is a gift that's given by the Lord of a well-trained tongue A well-trained tongue, not because they're fancy in their words, but because they have learned through the labor of listening to all the actors in this event, all the modes of communication, and then struggle, struggle, struggle to give a voice to this communal preaching of a sacramental word in which Christ is present speaking to us. And so this multi-dimensional encounter is what I have called the holy preaching. And it's my, it's not my, I didn't think this up, it's my borrowing of an early name of Dominic's for the entire community as the order of preachers. He called the community the holy preaching, the faithful body of Christ, to extend the term, is the holy preaching. Because 
all she says and does. The embodiment of this word finds its wellspring and its summit in this place of the liturgy, what we call word and sacrament, Eucharist. And from that, all the other sacramental life forms of the church that we call sacraments. So let me close this section about the locus of the revelation and the sacred role of proclamation and the preaching of the word by emphasizing if this is all true, then it also involves a sacred trust. Imagine again, within the event of reading these accounts together in community, broken open by a leader of the assembly to mine its riches for this time and this place, something holy happens. Especially when it's embraced and made radiant in the light of faith in Jesus Christ, his paschal mystery, and in the pouring out of this Pentecostal fire into those who have now gathered in his name, epiclesis. All this leads inevitably to the table, to the food, to the sacrum convivium, and it calls for this revelatory gift to be received and then offered back in a symbolic exchange in praise and thanks. Received and offered back, proclamation and response. That's the rhythm and the harmony of the liturgy. It's the rhythm and harmony of the whole liturgy. It, what it, it is what it means to be invited into the pattern of these good things. As St. Justin Martyr tried to explain to those Roman authorities about just what it was they were doing when they gathered for Eucharist. So encountering a laboring word, a Christ who is working endlessly to be where we are and to show us the Father who is the source of this wellspring of relational love, encountering a laboring word matters. And it forms. And it relies in that sacred trust upon the struggling ways that we try to give voice and shape to this divine embrace we call Christian worship. It's both, it should be consoling to us. It should also make us shake in our boots. It's a consolation and a risk. Because God takes us and who we are and how we choose to hand over our lives in surrender to these mysteries, God takes this seriously. And so I think, should we? Because we are bound now to him and he to us, the totus Christus. He is the head and we are the members. We are the limbs that get shape and purpose to that revelatory word that's spoken in the world today.
that's a risk. So now let me say just a little bit more about the laboring word and about idle chatter, to which, and I count myself among this, we often fall prey. And it differs with a holy preaching, which is our shared vocation, all of us. A recent document from our Jesuit general congregation speaks of Jesuits being placed with Christ laboring in the world. Christ is laboring in the world for us. And that should color our mission, according to these documents. And so in thinking, I was once asked to write something. What is Jesuit preaching? It's lofty and, and <laughs> important. Uh, but in thinking about Jesuits in preaching, I began to think about the society and her preachers using the term companions, which is the original, the companions of Jesus, the companions of a laboring word. So Christ is always laboring for us and in us and through us and with us. And so preaching in that vein should bear the marks of the master, of Christ's own way of proceeding. Preaching a laboring word should follow where the beloved goes. It is a work of tilling the soil where it is planted and digging around the locus of revelation that's embedded in these sacred texts and in the community of the hearers of the word, to use Karl Rahner's beloved term, and also in the liturgical enactment in which we are placed with Christ. <clears throat> and the field of this labor and planting has to be the real world. The real world in which we have been planted, where the joy and the hope, and the, you could recite this with me, the joy and the hope, the grief and the anguish of the women and men of our time, especially those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and the hope and the grief and the anguish of the followers of Christ. We know where we are and where we have been sent. Everything and everyone and everywhere is part of the holy preaching. And <clears throat> preaching this laboring word requires an art. Thank you. It's, and it's the art of what Dominican William Hill has called charismatic reinterpretation. He's bringing back patristic sources in this, seeking, always seeking to uncover something new, the census planior, what Hill calls, and I'm quoting him, a sense that God himself intends beyond the explicit meaning of the words. The fruit of such digging around is to arouse faith 
and to see how God is working in this moment, not simply in the text itself, but as a dynamic word immersed in the concrete and real life of the communitas verbe who hear it, Hill says. This has consequences. Simplistic or univocal interpretations of scripture and pithy stories to accompany them that may and most often may not have some peripheral connection to the challenge and the grace of this word simply do not pass muster from this perspective. Chatting about the word, chatting about the gospel as if it was somehow a text unto itself in this event, or distancing oneself from the rough and artful challenge to see all the readings bumping up, up against one another in the context also of this feast and season and in the concrete and real lives of the hearers, chatting about the word is the safe way out. It is, in my opinion, a trivial and cosmetic smoothing and raking of the soil with no fruitful life to benefit. Nothing fruitful for the limbs of this body of Christ gathered to find their Lord as a real presence as a real presence of, as Carl Reiner says, a word of grace, reconciliation, and eternal life, Jesus Christ. I think people want to hand over their lives to that. Giving voice to this uttered word of grace is hard work. It is a toil. And it requires a laborer who waits for the coming of the Lord among them, trusting that there really is a precious crop to be harvested from this ecclesial earth. Where the seed of this good word has been sowed and given to us, it's work. To offer less reduces the holy preaching to idle chatter and small talk. We squeeze the life out of the dynamism of this redemptive dialogue when we do not honor the laborer, the divine laborer, with our labor. Now, the more I have thought about encountering a laboring word, the more I see that all who prepare and preside at the liturgy are also responsible for that tilling. This is not the presider's one-man show. We are all fellow laborers with Christ as well. The whole of the liturgy is a preaching of the word, and the ebb and the flow of the rhythm and harmony of the rite, it all demands work artful preparation, 
artful enactment on the part of liturgical ministers. But we should not stop there. The entire assembly has a sacramental task in the holy preaching, for they, too, are encountering a laboring word. And so as the body of Christ, they have to do work. They have to till around the confines of the preacher's words and the complexity of the world and everything that they bring with them on this Sunday, their own lives and loves and struggles and toils. And they have to have, I think, a reasonable expectation that such work on their part will yield this precious crop from the landscape of their own hunger and longing. But my friends, for that to happen with greater transparency and with regularity, because God takes us seriously, preachers and presiders and preparers of the liturgy, those who sing and proclaim and serve the table and gather the tithe, everyone has work to do in the service of the body so that the people's labor will not be in vain. So Christ does not labor merely in the voice of the preacher, for that would be to miss this matrix of symbolic relationships at work in the liturgy where we believe Christ is present. Yet, at the same time, I would also argue that presiders and preachers are particularly vulnerable here. In a special way, preachers and presiders have their hand to the rudder, and they steer the ship. And we've seen the boats go round and round <laughs> and round. Or sink. You know, as the great Episcopalian preacher and writer Barbara Brown Taylor has said, insofar as a preacher's voice is heard in the context of worship, his or her speech is sanctioned in a way that other speech is not. Through the words the preacher uses, the body language they proclaim, and the embracing threshold they open up or not, can open up or mute the gracious words that come from the mouth of Christ, who speaks, who is speaking, Sacrosanctum Concilium says, when the Holy Scriptures are read in the church. Now, suffice it to say that preachers can ignore the hunger and they can deepen the drought in this dry land. Recent studies of congregations and their deepest hopes and expectations speak to this. I'm sure you're familiar with the Hogan, Carroll, and Sheets study of a few decades back. They came to the same conclusion, six different denominations. Imagine all Christians agreeing on two things. Their number one desire was for preaching that moves us. That's what the hunger is saying. 
And you know what the second one was? A spirituality that we can live by. And when these researchers asked the same congregation, what's your greatest disappointment? Their answer was also startling and univocal. I'm sure you know what it is. Their greatest disappointment is the preaching. Even more recent studies, and Carla helped me a little bit on that, they suggest in the past few years that many people simply do not expect to hear a fresh word in many cases. People do not come on Sunday in most Catholic parishes and go, can't wait, <laughs> can't wait. And so the greatest hunger, if that's true, is not being met on many levels. Sometimes over time, and this is because matter matters and form forms, I think that assemblies forget how to be hearers of the word. And they instead are formed into pious and well-meaning or bored readers of bulletins or filers of cuticles <laughs> during the homily. Have you seen it? You've seen this. We have to be honest here. You know, there are outstanding exceptions to this. There's great preaching in certain places. But on the whole, liturgical preaching, at least from what I'm hearing, and I think that's what you're hearing, uh, in many places and communities is bereft. Which leads me to idle chatter. Now, many of us are familiar with the artful reflections on the liturgy, the difference between an idol and an icon. You know those, that discussion in theology using the work of the French phenomenologist Jean-Luc Marianne. And it was used with poetic grace by Nathan Mitchell to speak of the mystery and the manners of Eucharistic praying. Did it so beautifully. And Louis-Marie Chauvet used it to speak of the sacramentality of scripture. And John Baldwin on the state of liturgical reform and the wearying lit liturgy wars, to name a few people. And they're much more eloquent than I, so you should read them. However, it should be clear from what we have been considering that when the relational, dialogical, and participative dimension of the liturgy as this matrix of symbolic relationships does not take place, our preaching and our celebrations become a mirror of our own selves, idolatrous, rather than a doorway into the mystery, iconic. And specifically in regard to preaching, I think that when we do not honor the many levels of relational communion taking place in the sacred mystery, preaching slowly gravitates to the safe place that I described above, that of idle chatter. And the vision is in this very self-enclosed place of idle chatter 
it's very small, very small. And it's shaped by our own, I hate to say this, our own control issues or our laziness or, or dare I say it, our fear that more may be asked of us in digging around the ground of this mystery than we're willing to hand over. Such preaching, I think, stands at a distance and it resorts to casual observations about the readings. Usually only one reading, to be honest. Right? Right? Or it resorts to vagaries and vicissitudes about human life and then leaves it at that. Idle chatter avoids the real work, the kenosis of the laboring word, the summons to find the one who goes where we are and wherever the wound is most acute and the longing most intense and pitches his tent among us to be and to dwell with us. And preaching like this has many self-focused faces that stare back at us as if in a mirror. Such preaching can be cold and formal with precise exegesis and ponderous considerations of the tradition with a little catechetical moralizing thrown in from afar. But it can also be the same old, same old axes to grind by disenchanted anti-institutionalists and lounge-act preachers with a quick story to tell, you know, wandering up and down the aisle, all the while expecting the adulation of nodding heads. like-minded idol seekers. You know this, you've seen it. We know both of these extremes and more often we know a mixture of both that are often artfully disguised by the reader of an internet homily craftily passed off as one's own. This is idle chatter. Now, holy preaching, on the other hand, is iconic. It opens up a door. It provides a threshold, a way into the mystery. And it requires a lot of laboring, a good dose of the poetic, the art of silent waiting when none of your eloquent words seem to come, no big thoughts. And it is a willingness to gaze into the assembled body of Christ as the locus of revelation, seeking a depth of wisdom that the Spirit will pour out and knowing that the shared life embedded in these texts of this holy word proclaimed and in the eyes and ears of the body of Christ to which they are addressed are together for the preacher like a lamp unto the soul which an icon provokes. Holy preaching sounds like the body of Christ. 
it sounds like the totus Christus. It is bread in the wilderness, and it is water from the flinty rock. It's full of the deepest lament and is not afraid to go there. And it's not afraid to experience the richest joy. It sings and rocks like a gospel choir, and it chants with the grace of contemplative devotion. Holy preaching does not occur with one eloquent homily, as gratifying a measure of success that may seem to some of us. Boy, wasn't I great. <laughs> it is the self-identing characteristic of a liturgical community to whom the word is iconically preached and where grace is named faithfully over time, in good times and in bad, in richness and in health, week after week, through a sacramental imagination that sees everyone and everything and every place as matter and form to be consecrated taken, blessed, broken, poured out and shared for the life of the world. All life, all holiness comes from you through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, by the working of the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is true symbolic exchange to use the imagery of symbol and sacrament with which Chauvet has graced theology in the past few decades. You know, Chauvet's well-known four traits of the symbol I started reading it in terms of liturgical preaching as a symbolic exchange. And I just wanted to lay out for you, I'm sure you all know this better than I, but in, in uh, sacraments, the word of God at the mercy of the body, he has four traits of a symbol. The first, fitting together. The symbol itself fits into a greater whole that finds its meaning precisely in relationship to that whole of which itself is a part. And the example he uses is a piece of the Berlin Wall. Piece of the Berlin Wall, or two coins that come together in the war so they knew they were common uh, members of the underground. It fits together. The second thing is crystallization, he calls it. The symbolic element, this piece, crystallizes in itself, when you have it, the whole of which it is a part. And it carries the whole within itself. Can you see how this can work for preaching? And it makes it present under a new mode. It is what it represents. And then thirdly, when this happens, there is a recognition. Aha, an identification. When one encounters and engages such a symbol, think of the little piece of Berlin Wall, the joining of the elements causes recognition or the identification of the persons as partners in this exchange. We have a part to play as subjects in the coming to be of the symbol. Or else that Berlin Wall is just a piece of shard. And finally, this blew me away. It leads to the submission to the communal other. 
Chauvet says, those who experience their subjectivity in communion with each other recognize the other, the bonder of the unity, as the agent and source of their communion. Maybe Christ, yeah, okay? And they are bonded together in this common whole. He says, this subjects them to a common symbolic order and allows them to form a community. The body of Christ, this is my comment, we could say is the source of our identity, both individual and communal. So, sacramental preaching, I think, has a clear affinity with his examples both of this little piece of the Berlin Wall, but also I want to show you a painting, which I'm sure you've seen of Van Gogh. It's number two. This is the last one you can see. You're familiar with this painting of Van Gogh's peasant shoes. He speaks about it a lot. Van Gogh bought these peasant shoes worn out from a Paris flea market in 1886. And he did this painting, which has evoked so much deep discussion concerning the symbolic character of a work of art. And these are some of the comments from both Chauvet and Heidegger. He says, these shabby shoes have become the bearers of the misery of a rural world a century ago, and even of the world at large. And that is why they speak to us today. And then he quotes Heidegger. He says that all the toil, the anxiety, the relief, and the joy in life and death pass through these shoes and communicate this world to us. The painting shows what the pair of shoes is in truth. Isn't that great? All this is gathered together in her shoes, he says, and through them, the woman is welded to her world. Now, seen from Chauvet's characterizations and traits of the symbol, you can apply this so easily to the art of naming grace. Every liturgical homily can be iconic and part of this artful, symbolic exchange. First characteristic, it is symbolic when it fits together, when its words and proclamation are not isolated from the whole, and when it is heard and experienced, to use Chauvet's word, in its relationship to the whole to which it belongs. If the preaching isn't touching people's lives, it ain't happening, okay? This people, this time, this meal consumed for this purpose of the mission entrusted to the church today. It fits together. Secondly, that crystallization and in opening up the door to glimpse the mystery of this proclamation Iconic, symbolic preaching is a taste and a promise of the fullness toward which we are journeying as a people and the heavenly banquet of which this is the foretaste 
of the future promise. It carries the whole in this simple moment of proclamation. As Chauvet says, the symbolic element represents the whole of the world to which it belongs. It carries it within itself. And then thirdly, in this joining and communion, this is about the recognition. In this joining and communion, the preaching of the word causes a movement, an aha, hopefully, a felt knowledge, a recognition which allows the hearers then to recognize, first of all, the word as holy and themselves as hearers of a holy word, as subjects in this great exchange. The hearers then, we could say, matter, and they are formed. And then finally, about the communal dimension, all who hear the holy preaching are summoned to a common symbolic order, which allows them to form community. Such preaching as symbolic exchange is, to use Chauvet's word, a creator of community. That's its possibility. Where the behearers of the word are bonded together with one another in Christ, head and members, body of Christ. If that's true, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? This is something we can all sing with one voice of thanks and praise. Now, all the, you can turn it up unless you want to look at the shoes, okay? <laughs> Coming in for a landing here. All of this, all of this is a grace and it is also a challenge. The hunger is there. The desire for a word that will rouse them endures. And as liturgists and preachers and faithful assembly, we have to believe in the spirit of the prophet Isaiah, that the giver of the gift will give us a well-trained tongue to speak this word. That's the vocation of the holy preaching. And it is truly a labor of love with love. And it's a communal summons to which we must respond and in which we are not alone. It's about holy communion. And so I would like to close with a quote also, thank you, you showed this to me, from William Hill. And it comes when William Hill is speaking about, and I'm having my class read it this semester, preaching as a moment in theology. Great essay, isn't it? And this essay has moved and guided me ever since I encountered those essays in Mary Catherine's edited book and had opened up for many of us in this field when we did not have the theological words to speak about the dynamism of preaching as a moment in theology. And it gave voice to the experience that we all had of the truth that Christ's real presence happens when we encounter such a laboring word. And when grace is named neither too soon nor too late. And so I close with these. Hill called 
these, his closing words, one final cautionary remark about the moment that is so precious of charismatic reinterpretation. And this is what he says. The word, which is the bearer of God's life and meaning for us, incarnates itself in human history midway between the one who utters it and those who listen. But we must take seriously the fragility of the human situation here. God's act in history is a kenosis. God's intentions remain those of setting up the kingdom in and through the weak things of the world. And so, paradoxically, God cannot do without the stammering ways in which you strive to give utterance to that word. God cannot do without the stammering ways in which we strive to get utterance to that word. It is part of faith, he says, to accept that. Thank you for listening to me and blessing on your preaching. Amen. For some questions, please. They want to go to a party. It's Friday night. Lent is Wednesday. Yes. Absolutely. I can. Um, personal prayer, and what was the other one? The personal prayer and spirituality. That's what opens the door in you so that you can be a vessel for this grace to flow through you. That's different than using preaching to uh, saw your own sawhorses in the, in the pulpit. It's a different experience. I mean, truly... God chooses us and speaks to us and has a presence to us and for us. I told my preachers who are not praying should resign. I am totally into that. And I, I'm, I, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Ian Matthew, The Impact of God, is a great book on this and his newest one about this whole idea of allowing yourself your soul to be the dwelling place where the bridegroom comes to sit. I don't think, if that's not happening, that's when the idle chatter happens. That's when the, the kind of blip, blurred screen stuff happens. 
Yeah. And just so you know, the little thing I made about internet canned homilies, it happens out there a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Right. How in our preaching can we help people find this hunger so we have that ground to enter into this, this method of preaching? Wow. That was a simple question. <laughs> I, think, I think the whole thing about hunger, just because people can articulate that they're hungry. I mean, there's a lot of people that are hungry for meaning who are in bars in downtown San, uh, South Bend tonight who don't even know it, you know? So, so the, the question you're asking is, how do you, well, I'll be in the same bar later. <laughs> no, but I'd say there's a lot of people who live lives of, of desperation, hours in front of the television, or you know, loneliness. But so therefore, all we could do is create communities where people can hear a word. And I, all I can tell you is that where the word is being preached, people will come. People will come. Or they will, what about all the people in, the, in, the, in a community who become preached communities and they encounter these people and they can speak a word that will arouse them? You know, that, that we have to be able to live a faith. You say, well, where are you getting that faith? What's in the community that I am? Why do we have this word? Well, we gather, we hear the word and we eat it and consume it and it becomes honey in our mouths. You know, I mean, I just, that's the only thing because I, I, ha I haven't learned to save the world yet, and uh, most of us haven't, but Jesus can, you know. Jesus saves. I believe that. And, and so, so where is Christ? The spirit-filled, resurrected body of Christ. Where else? Unless you've had a vision lately, and I haven't. So, yeah. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. God love you. Good luck. I have the easiest and task of the evening, which is on behalf of all of us gathered here, uh, Mrs. Virginia Martin, her family, our benefactors, Mike Connors and Carla Bellinger, the Martin Program, Matt Ashley, our learned chair, my amazing colleagues in the MDU Program, Jan Foreman, Stacey Nolan, Father Pete Jarrett, the community of gathered here this evening, the Master Divinity Community, and many other students and faculty here tonight. On behalf of all of us, Father Paul, mm -hmm. thank you very, very much. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you.